So good evening, everyone. How's my sound? Am I good? A little more? We're good. Okay. It's always a little nerve-wracking sitting here and beginning to talk to you. I don't care how old I get. You would think we'd be old enough to finally not have this um, sense of anxiety. But what I realize is that it's, it's because I love you. And it's because I'm, it's important to me that we have this conversation, even though it's one way. And I grew up in the Baptist church, and I remember my mother played in the piano, and I remember her always beginning, before she was going to talk or say something, she would say, give me a clean heart so that I can serve you. It was part of a hymn that we sang growing up. And that's my prayer for this evening, that my heart is, is uh, clean, and that's it. it's of service to you. So tonight I'd like to talk about this precious birth I'd like to talk um, a little about some views on death and also the promise of our practice, this practice that we do together. And I'd like to start by sharing a sutta, the Chigala Sutta. It's called the Turtle, the Whole Sutta. And it goes like this. I'll share a part of it now and then share the rest of it later. Monks which is all of you. (laughs) Suppose that this great earth were totally covered with water and a man were to toss a yoke with a single hole there in this water. And wind from the east would push it west and wind from the west would push it east and wind from the north would push it south and wind from the south would push it north. And suppose a blind sea turtle were there. It would come to the surface once every 100 years. Now, what do you think? With that blind sea turtle coming to the surface once every 100 years, stick his neck through the yoke with a single hole. And the response is, it would be a sheer coincidence, Lord, that the blind sea turtle coming to the surface once every 100 years would stick his neck into the yoke with a single hole. And the response of the wise one says, it's likewise a sheer coincidence that once that one obtains this human state. So the rarity of us being in this human form is as rare as a blind sea turtle finding its way to the top of the ocean and coincidentally bobbing its head into the hole of a yoke. That's how rare this precious form is this birth is. 
And it's a sheer coincidence, or we might say a series of karmic blooms that, and many births and rebirths that has afforded us the privilege of sitting here in this human form and in this practice. Sheer coincidence. So we want to look at and pay homage to or honor the full of our lives, all of the stuff that was happening before we even came into the Dharma, the full of our lives. I loved what um, Anna was teaching last night on the heavenly messengers, and what struck me this time after hearing the story was that the Buddha was 29 years old. He was married and he had a son, 29 years old when he left the privilege of the palace, the confines. What were you doing at 29 years old? What questions were you asking? What, was you, what were you curious about at 29? What were you protected from? And what risks do you recall taking at that time? Because these all begin to tell us how we're being initiated into uh, not only this human form, but but what kind of brought us to this practice. What was your gateway into this practice? My gateway into this practice was suffering. And by the time I was 29 years old, I had had open-heart surgery. I had lived most of my life with an undiagnosed hyperactive thyroid. So I was on fire, and I was angry. I had a kid at 15, and by the time I was 17, my father was murdered. So this is not about uh, a pity party. It's that I'm guessing that everyone in this room has had some degree of suffering, or what we call in the African tradition, warrior marks. If I were to trace the warrior marks on this body of all the ways it's been touched, violated, um, abused, you know, um, cuts here, there, you know, replacements, whatever. I mean, we all have these warrior marks that represent the full of our lives. All of these experiences are the same as us being blind turtles floating. Now, you know the blind turtle had to be bumping into a few things floating around in all that water. So we've got the bumps and bruises and marks as well in this physical form. So suffering was my gateway. And all of these experiences that we have, the good, the bad, and the ugly, are initiations in a way. They're here to apprentice us, these heavenly messengers, They're here to wake us up to how to live. So what preciousness are you blind to? What preciousness are you to see and know without eyes?
there's a ritual in uh, Japan that's called um, Kinsukoryo. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing it right. But what it is, is the art of repairing damaged pottery. Some of you probably know about this art form. Um, the, the, the beauty of it is that it's, it's kind of restoring functionality of pottery, of a dish. And sometimes I associate this precious birth and the heavenly messengers with this ritual. It's taking something that's broken and repairing it with gold. And so as we move around in our lives, as we think about the full of our lives, as we honor the full of our lives, we're going to have chips and broken parts and bruises. And um, there's a way we can restore and bring our experiences of suffering to beauty with this practice. The goal being, in my mind, it's been the Dharma. So I'm going to post this so that you can, can enjoy it. But this whole idea of turning brokenness into value and beauty is a way of holding our experiences, of relating to this precious birth and all that goes with it. Jane Hirschfeld, who's a poet and practitioner, says that suffering leads us to beauty the way thirst leads us to water. Suffering leads us to beauty the way thirst leads us to water. So what are your warrior marks? What can you dignify uh, and adore um, in your life as you look at the full of this precious birth. So life is precious and it's difficult to gain and it's easy to lose. So we have this fragility that's real for us and it becomes even more real the odor that we get. And inherent in this precious birth is death. It's like kind of comes with it. No. I heard this, uh, one of my uh, students, if you will, came and told me this thing that his daughter told him in the middle of the night, came and woke him up out of bed and shared this. And I've since learned that it's something that a lot of people have said in different Buddhist communities. But it's, it goes like this, life and death were talking. And life said to death, why does... Everyone love you and hate me. And death said, because you're a beautiful lie and I'm the dreadful truth. <laughs> so there is no protection from the fierce truth of these heavenly messengers. There's no protection from aging, illness, and death. So what is your relationship to death? What's a story you've been telling yourself for a long time about death that's no longer true? I am of the nature to die, I cannot avoid death is one of the reflections 
in this practice. I am of the nature to die. I cannot avoid death. So we're all dying. It's only a matter of time. Some of us die earlier. Some of us die later. Um, Ram Dass says we're all just walking each other home. And that that's kind of what we're doing. Death is certain and it comes without warning. Sometimes it comes with a warning. But it's always something that could happen in the blink of an eye. So our experience with both life and death has to do with our view, how we look at it, how we relate to it. And there's a couple of ideas that I've kind of captured over the last few months. One thing that I read was that birth and death are phases of an unbroken process of grasping. So departure from, it's a departure from those that we're leaving behind. And it's the arrival of a newborn baby in someone else's lives. So it's, a, it's the unbroken process of grasping. Dying is nothing but a backward view of life, and birth is nothing but a forward view of life. Dalkey said that. And then I, I read this story saying, suppose there's only one gate to a house. Is that an exit gate or an entrance gate? If you're on the roadside, it's an entrance gate. If you're inside the house, it's an exit gate. For both, it's a gate viewed differently. And then I saw a little Facebook cartoon of two chickens in this open field, and they're, they're separated by this long fence. And you know, but they can see each other, and one hollers over and says, hey, how do you get on the other side? And the other chicken says, you are on the other side. (laughs) (laughs) So how we relate to death and life has to do with our view, how we're holding the experience. Rather, the holding of this experience is one that creates more suffering or brings um, more wisdom to how we hold our lives. So what's important? What what matters when you look at your life and death? What must we free so that our inherent gifts can flower? What do we need to forgive? What do we need to let go of? What do we need to be a bit more easeful with? to allow. So I have a reflection I'd like to invite. And I invite you to just close your eyes if you're comfortable with this. And just notice for a moment yourself sitting here. Allow yourself to make contact with the cushion and, and with your breath. 
the experience of breathing in the body. Dropping your awareness inside. And some of you are already facing these reflections I'm going to offer. So just see what it's like to just be with the question. See how you're touched by the question. If you had 12 months to live, what would you do? How would you want to be with that time? If you had six months to live, what would you do? How would you want to be? If you had three months to live, 90 days, what would you do? If you had one month to live, 31 days, what would you do? How would you be with that time? If you had one week to live, seven days, what would you do? How would you want to be with that time? If you had one day to live, 24 hours, how would you want to be with that time? What would you do? If you had one hour to live, sixty minutes, 
how would you want to be with that time? And if you had one breath, one breath, how would you want to be with it? And you can open your eyes. Rumi said that at the end of my life, with just one breath left, if you come, I will sit up and sing. So in the Buddhist teachings, We're invited to reflect on our lives often and to not take this precious life for granted, to recognize it as a precious birth. And I invite you to consider what aspect of your life is medicine for the world. When you think about us, and this, the teachings of the Buddha is that we wake up for the benefit of all beings. So to think about, regardless of the form or the experiences with the heavenly messengers you might be touching into, still, what might your life What aspect of your life is medicine for the world? We are precious, resilient, fragile, and we're here. You know, Joe Biden just lost his son. And uh, earlier, he lost his wife and first child. And so he was, someone caught an interview of him speaking referring to his wife and child that he lost, baby girl. And what he said was that there, come, there will come a day when the thought of your loss brings a smile to your lips before it brings a tear to your eyes. And what I love about this is that he's really speaking to um, impermanence, but also that our relationship to loss and gain and, you know, death and, and the preciousness of life is very impermanent and can still be cherished. So I'll go on with this sutta because it had another couple of sections in it with the turtle. It goes on to say, that it's likewise a sheer coincidence that a Tathagata, 
which is how the Buddha referred to himself. Um, And Tathagata means both one who has thus come and also one who has thus gone. So this relationship to impermanence and both being here and not being here. So it's likewise a sheer coincidence that a Tathagata worthy and rightly self-awakened arises in the world. It's likewise a sheer coincidence that a doctrine and discipline expounded by a Tathagata appears in the world. So the Buddha and the Dharma, the teachings. Now this human state has been obtained We're in this precious body. The Tathagatha, worthy and rightly self-awakened, has arisen in the world, the Buddha being a living example of one who can awaken. And a doctrine and discipline espounded by a Tathagatha appears in the world, the teachings appearing in the world as a precious offering. So it's not only a precious birth because we are in this human form, it's a precious birth because we've also found the Dharma. That that's also sheer coincidence, sheer karmic coincidence that we are having this experience. Therefore, the Sutta goes on to say, your duty is to contemplate the Four Noble Truths, that there is suffering in the world, that there is a cause of suffering in the world, that we can be free from this suffering, and there's a path, a path well walked, that we're all on together. So that's the promise in some ways of our practice, that we can, like the Buddha, have experiences of awakening and being freed from the grip that's often associated with suffering, which, is, which has to do with our relationship to suffering, not the suffering itself, but how we are in relationship to it. I've been reading this book by Bob um, Burby. It's called Seeing That Freeze. And it has to do with emptiness and dependent origination, which is um, part of the teachings in our tradition. And he describes this insight practice, this meditation practice in this way. He says, insight is a way of looking that frees. He calls it an insight way of looking. Insight is any realization, understanding, of way and way, or way of seeing that reduces suffering, cuts, decreases, dissolves, what suffering relies on. So sometimes you hear that mindfulness practice is just about moment-to-moment awareness, but it's really about seeing from a particular view, seeing with the understanding that there is suffering, seeing with the understanding that when we hold tightly to any belief, you know, when we grasp it, we're going to be missing out on a lot of other things. We're going to suffer. So it's seen from a particular lens. And that um, an insight is something that uh, reduces our reliance on what this grip is. And what does suffering rely on? It relies on aversion. And it relies on 
craving. And the release from this suffering is something that we can experience. This is a verified practice. It's something we can experience. I was attracted to Buddhism because uh, uh, being raised in the Baptist church, I had preachers, you know, telling me a lot of things about what I should do in my spiritual practice. And I didn't really understand what I was quite so upset about, (laughs) being the adversive type that I am. But I was mostly um, attracted because... um, I knew there had to be another way other than just being angry at the world for all the raw deals that I felt like I had had. Um, But I was inspired by um, growing up in the civil rights movement, uh, being a big part of my life and um, conditioning. I was so attracted to Martin Luther King who had this idea of fighting with your heart and someone whose theme song has been the heart to the extent of open heart surgery even, one of the things I could realize was that, you know, just maybe there's another way. And then there, there's this, this, this Buddha guy, you know, talking about, yeah, you know, come and look for yourself. Know for yourself. Know from your own experience what freedom is. And in the practice, there's a literal, literal softening of experiences, softening of the grip of suffering, that I have these moments, and the moments have momentum. They accumulate. It just feels like after a while, and often in retrospect, I can look back on my life and see that my relationship to how I'm relating to things has really shifted. It's like a surprise. My mother passes a year ago this past, uh, just last month, her birthday was Sunday. And I'm not gripped by it in the same way because we had a more genuine relationship. So death is is to uh, wake us up and have us uh, relate more through the window of the heart, have a good fight while at the same time holding someone's hand. Can you imagine that? Fighting while holding someone's hand. So that's, it's, it's, that's a practice. So this practice uh, allows us to reverse our conditioning, our habituation, the, the things we just habitual, habitually do that causes suffering. And we learn how to rely more on awareness itself instead of awareness being attached to something being just right outside of our lives. And this includes how our body changes as we are aging. And we really don't know what's going to happen next in our lives or in the the next moment. And, and I, it, it seems to me that not knowing is a core competency for awakening. You know, this learning to kind of ride the waves of uncertainty is a competency, it's a practice that we get better at when we hold the intention to do so.
one of the things I'm noticing in my own practice is not only the suffering uh, that appears or the things that arise that I become really gripped by and um, attached to, but I'm more and more noticing those moments when that's not there. That there's actually spaces and a lot of moments where it just feels good. It just feels good. I, it, it surprises me. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm delighting in this. And the other um, insight that I gained from this book uh, on seeing that freeze is that there is with practice this way that we can notice something. We can have an insight about something and many of you have shared many lovely insights. But to stay with the insight long enough so that it is permeating or influencing our view of the next thing that happens. So we're cultivating an atmosphere from the insight that welcomes what arises next. And this is the promise of our practice. This is the momentum of mindfulness, of our, of our sitting practice, that we can begin to be touched deeply by an insight and that we can rest and tolerate those moments of liberation more and more. So we're not fixated on the suffering. We're seeing that uh, we can actually embrace the suffering through this atmosphere that's been infused with insight. Another thing I've been um, kind of discovering in my own aging process and with this whole thing is that uh, more and more I'm holding the mantra of there's nothing wrong. Really? (laughs) You know, so sometimes I have a question behind it. But walking in the world uh, with nothing being wrong, the things that arise not being a problem, the things that are not being wrong. So there's nothing wrong gives me a lot of freedom to greet what's here with a bit more space and kindness. Gloria Steinem said that the truth will set you free, but it'll first piss you off. (laughs) So, you know, we can be in a practice where we're seeing what's hard, and then, you know, we can do our little dance with that or not. But then then having the insight stepping into the place of viewing awareness itself of what's happening, which is really different than being what's happening. It's a shift. It's like an Aikido move where you're shifting your view, which then shifts your relationship to what's happening. And it's, um, I'm, I'm, uh, it's a sheer coincidence, if I can go back to the sutta, that I'm able to have these moments of joy because there's so much craziness going on in my life in a way. You know, I've got all kind of nieces and nephews in the prison system and, you know, I mean, every time I turn around, some, somebody's getting shot and killed and my partner has rheumatoid arthritis and sometimes I find myself 
angry because she might die. It's like, wait just a minute, you know. <laughs> Forget about the practice, you know. Uh, but what's interesting is that I'm not gripped by it for long periods of time. And that's the promise of our practice. And I'm reminded of what Anna said last night about Posada, was it Posada? Which is the confidence and faith and stability that you gain through the practice itself. There's no replacement for it. You know, the practice has its own <coughs> gifts. And that there can be a growing and a direct experience of right view. That's, that's something that's touched your heart. And she shared with us last night what Ajahn Chah said about that we want to take the feeling of letting go as refuge. The feeling of letting go. There is an experience that goes with letting go. It's not a concept. It's a subtle shift that we can feel on the inside and know intimately. And that's one way of not, of really honoring this precious birth and death. So I'll offer this uh, poem by David White, who, um, who I'm in love with. And uh, earlier this year, I, I took my partner uh, for her birthday to a weekend retreat in a Sillimore in, in California to a poetry retreat that he offered. And um, one of the yogis here was on that retreat, so it was a really beautiful reunion. And, uh, and he offered this poem called Pilgrim that really touched my heart, and I think it really belongs to this community, and I'll share it with you. He says, the great, the great measure of human maturation is the increasing understanding that we move through life in the blink of an eye, that we are not long with the privilege of having eyes to see, ears to hear, a voice with which to speak, and arms to put around a loved one, that we are simply passing through. We are creatures made real through contact, getting to know and moving beyond, which is forever changing. We move from the transformations that enlarge and strengthen us to the ones that turn us from consuming to being consumed, from seeing to being semi-blind, from speaking in one voice to hearing in another. So let's sit for a few minutes.
this precious birth, the Buddha, our Buddha nature, the Dharma, sheer coincidences. We move from the transformations that enlarge and strengthen us to the ones that turn us from consuming to being consumed, from seeing to being semi-blind, and from speaking in one voice to hearing in another. Thank you for your attention. We'll take walking meditation and be back at nine for our last sit.